0: I've noticed that people are particularly tired and exhausted at the moment as we begin to emerge from lockdown. This is due to all sorts of things. One of the causes is virtual fatigue, being on a screen too long. And another big cause is the fatigue that comes from loneliness and disconnection. But there's also another type of fatigue that healthcare workers, those on the front line and those in any sort of a caring role can experience. And this is compassion fatigue. So I'm having a bit of a break for Easter, but I thought that it would be good to reshare one of our very early episodes from way before lockdown, but it's incredibly pertinent and applicable for right now. In episode 10, I was joined by Agnes Otzelberger, a trainer, researcher and activist to discuss how we can become overwhelmed and exhausted by the magnitude of needs and suffering of the people we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis we discuss how the symptoms of this can affect us and how we can end up with us leaving our job and becoming ill. I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope it's helpful to you. Listen if you want to find out why compassion fatigue is actually better described as empathetic burnout, how to boost our immunity to empathetic fatigue, and also find some simple tips and tools to avoid its toxic effects. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for GPs, doctors and other busy professionals in high-stress jobs. Even before the coronavirus crisis, many of us were feeling stressed and one crisis away from not coping. We felt like frogs in boiling water, overwhelmed and exhausted. But this has crept up on us slowly, so we hardly noticed the extra long days becoming the norm. And let's face it, frogs generally only have two choices. Stay and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave but you are not a frog and that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more options than you think you do. It is possible to be master of your own destiny and to craft your life so that you can thrive even in the most difficult of circumstances. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Morris, GP, 10 Executive Coach and Specialist in Resilience at Work. I work with doctors and other organisations all over the country to help professionals and their teams beat stress and take control of their work. I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control to survive and thrive in our work and lives. I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted at the moment, even though my job isn't as physically demanding as it used to be. Staring at a screen all day and interacting mostly online is exhausting, but I've discovered some hacks that have drastically reduced my virtual fatigue. So I've created a virtual fatigue buster toolkit, which shares these tips, techniques and resources and useful links with you, and even includes a three minute video and short team building activity that you can use with your team to beat virtual fatigue. It's available completely free to listeners, so click in the link in the show notes to get your free download. And while you're at it, why don't you get off your screen, get outside for a walk or move around in some way whilst you listen to this episode. I'm really pleased to have with me on the podcast today, Agnes Otzelberger. She's a trainer, a facilitator and a researcher, and she's got a special interest in the subjects of doing good. Agnes, if I got that right? What, what are you particularly interested in? Yeah, that is right. I'm really interested in
1: the nature of doing good and and of helping relationships. So altruism, our intentions and the relationships in, in helping others and how sometimes or very often they can be quite complicated and messy and doing good is not straightforward.
0: So how did your interest in this come about? So
1: I... I think I've always, you know, I've always been interested since I was a, a child in helping other people, and always thought that was going to be in some form my career, what I do for a living. I remember, in primary school, I wanted to start a kids' parliament, and then early secondary school, I started an animal welfare club, making cookies and sort of gathering donations, and it was really always from the sense that kind of. Supporting others, helping others, whether they're people or animals was going to be important in my life. So I started volunteering as a teenager and then ended up in the international development, international aid, quote unquote, industry, working as an advisor on issues around climate change, food security and poverty. So that's how I got into this kind of line of work.
0: Mm. And so what's, you know, what sort of issues were you seeing with, with doing good?
1: <laughs> yeah so there were there were many layers to this but basically i sort of i pretty early on thought i f- I figured out my career figured out my vocation it's going to be i'm going to be a helper a do good or an altruist and i'm going to save the world and then fast forward a few years into my career that was going pretty well at the time i was feeling really bitter and cynical and demotivated about all of it. And so it took, me, it took me a while to realize why that was. But with hindsight, I think what happened was that I'd kind of, I'd entered this profession unaware of how, when we enter helping relationships with other people, we create these power dynamics and these kind of roles that come with them and how they can have unintended consequences. And I was feeling these un- unintended consequences in my work on a daily basis. In addition to that, I also wasn't aware of or was probably at the time quite naive about the, I guess, the political and colonial connotations of work that involves white people being shipped off to country populated by brown people and saving the world there. Um, so, so there were many layers to the to the helping relationship that were on the surface looking like I was this hero who was doing good, but actually as I dug deeper into it, I was feeling quite ashamed of
0: Mm. And what other unintended consequences did you notice? So
1: when we support other people, when we help other people, driven by a compulsion to help, not being clear on where that comes from, we unintentionally create we unintentionally pass these compulsions on in the relationship, in the helping relationship. So it becomes a transaction where we're unaware that me helping the other person isn't such a genuine act of helping. It's actually me needing something from them. It's me needing to be needed by the other person. And that sounds a bit vague, but I think that really, that really expresses itself in how all the relationships in the helping professions often pan out and how when we then as helpers don't get what we want, we become angry, we become disappointed and cynical and demotivated. And yeah, so I could feel that, I think I could feel that at the time quite viscerally, but I I couldn't put words to it. And it took me a few years afterwards to work out what was actually going on. I think another unintended consequence is this thing I got really interested in, which is compassion fatigue Mm. or the emotional burnout. So when we're helping from this compulsive, must be giving at all times place, we really deplete ourselves yeah basically we can end up unable to do our job well we can end up unable to relate to other people we can end up unable to empathize with others because the emotions become so overpowering and overwhelming that we try to shut them down and then from the shutdown we get a whole range of other secondary consequences that are not very desirable in the helping professions or or anywhere for that matter
0: and do you see this particularly in one type of profession or is it goes sort of across the board?
1: So my experience is mostly in the international development sector or in the humanitarian sector and in charities. But in recent months and years, I've been talking to people across the helping professions. So I've been talking to people in social work, in health, in mental health, in animal welfare charities, people working on environmental issues, people working on human rights, on social justice issues. And I think at the very basis, the sort of the key issues are really similar. They're really shared.
0: So, It's interesting. So a lot lot of the listeners to this podcast are GPs or doctors and, you know, this sort of, you mentioned that people that experience this are people that sort of must be giving at all times. And I guess, I guess for doctors, that's almost their job description that they must be giving at all times. And it's interesting. I'm just trying to figure out in my head whether we really, you know, the old adage that doctors go into profession to help people is really true because actually a lot of us go into the profession because we're interested in people and we're interested in um, physiology and anatomy and science but then end up sort of in the position where we have to be helping people and so there's an element of yes i i've gone in to help people but there's an element of then but i also have been interested in all this sort of stuff but i'm just overwhelmed with the needs and the demands from people mm-hmm. have, you, have you seen that as well with the, just sort of this overwhelm
1: yeah there's a lot of overwhelming I think it can be important to distinguish between two things. One is that the overwhelm that comes from the sheer quantity of the work, the workload, the pressures, the sort of the relentlessness of it, which, you know, I recently read that book. This is going to hurt by Adam Kay. It really brought that relentlessness Mm -hmm. home to me. This sort of Mm -hmm. completely insane, crazy amount of hours people do the lack of backup you know how people then end up staying hours and hours and hours and hours beyond what they're supposed to simply because there isn't someone else to take over and it's literally a life and death question Mm -hmm. when in other professions people can say we're pretending this is life and death but it isn't so we can go home so there is that and then there is also the emotional component, the emotional relentlessness of a job that involves constantly being faced with suffering a human level animals planetary whatever it is whether you're a doctor and you work with with ill health and mental ill health or whether you work with planetary ill health but it's this constant relentless taking on of suffering mm-hmm. and it's that specifically i got really interested in and i think there are many sort of there are many ways in which the the workload overload and the emotional overload feed into one another mm. and also there are some different approaches and some specific ways that we need to understand emotional burnout and compassion fatigue that aren't the same as burnout from from overwork mm. so the thing that i didn't know when i was you know when i was working in international development and i was constantly processing you know bad news data about how many you know, hundreds of thousands of people were going hungry each year, and this natural disaster here, and that humanitarian catastrophe there, and I was constantly taking that on. And the recipe I was given by my peers and by my superiors at the time was, don't take it personal, keep your emotions out of it, and then you'll be fine. Basically, that was sort of the idea that was the the more I could compartmentalize and shut down my feelings about what was going on, the better I could do my job and the healthier I would be as a person. And so to an extent, that's what I achieved. I achieved shutting down my emotions and compartmentalizing things. But I ended up with the same result that I was fearing. So I ended up with the same emotional, complete burnout and breakdown that I was so desperately trying to avoid mm. and so this recipe that I think a lot of people are being passed on informally in um, in the helping professions this thing of sort of you know you must be quote unquote professional ie keep your feelings out of it I hear people saying things like focus on the job not on the people it's important and it works to an extent and certainly in some situations you want to be really focused on the task at hand like when you're doing open heart surgery it's probably really good to be able to focus on the job and not the people but a lot of these jobs involve a lot of relationships and relationship with you know people we work with at work the patients the clients the beneficiaries whatever you want to call them and these relationships break down when we shut down our emotions And we experience an isolation from others and from ourselves that ends up really depleting us. Mm. So the thing I was avoiding was, you know, was kind of having a breakdown. And the breakdown that slowly crept up on me was that I became cynical, I became hopeless, I became demotivated. I felt really ashamed because I wasn't really putting my 150% in anymore. I was kind of trying to do 80 and trying to pretend I was doing 100 because I couldn't really... Connect with the motivation for my work anymore, and I think in a job where you know you're vastly underpaid and doing too many hours, when you lose your motivation, there's not much left. Mm. So yeah, it was important to to see that that hadn't worked, and then what came later, a few years afterwards, was the realization that there are ways, there are there is a different. I don't want to call it a recipe, but there is another way where we can manage the emotional engagement in our work in a way that is sustainable and healthy.
0: So you mentioned being cynical, hopelessly motivated. Are there any other symptoms that people should look out for with compassion fatigue?
1: Yeah, I think so. What I've been learning about secondary trauma, or vicarious trauma, which in in some ways is, you know, a form of compassion fatigue or maybe an intense form of compassion fatigue, is that the, the symptoms can also be quite physical. So it's not just an emotional sign, but also when we find ourselves, you know, in some ways unhealthy, uh, depleted, energy levels down, that can be psychosomatic symptoms such as headaches and back pain and other forms of pain, that can be signs that things aren't right. And of course, it's hard to tell, is this from something else? Is this from compassion fatigue? But overall, when people are in huge amounts of tension all the time, they'll experience certain symptoms. Mm. And... I think apathy is, yeah, okay. an, mm-hmm. is an important mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. So this kind of going from I really, really care about this, yeah. going from having a real spark for the work and a real passion that we bring to it to not really giving a damn. So mm-hmm. people have told me things like I used to enjoy thinking about my work outside of work sometimes and I had to actually actually kind of manage that and make sure I don't take too much of it home, but it's just because I was so excited about it to going to, I can't wait for 5 p.m. or 10 p.m. or whatever it is. And in my free time, all of my free time is designed to help me escape, Mm. designed to help me not think about it. That's when sort of, you know, healthy self-care that is about nurturing ourselves and looking after ourselves is actually more like a sign of a coping mechanism Mm. that may not be very sustainable when we need to run from it, when we need to escape and numb ourselves. And when we stop caring, when we just don't really feel um, like we, we give a damn anymore. Yeah, and that's a sign of, of that kind of fatigue.
0: So just in survival mode.
1: Yeah, yeah. When we're in survival mode and when the work, you know, for a lot of people, a lot of people bring a fair amount of passion into this kind of work and an amount of care. And when those reduce, then that might be a sign of, of experiencing um, secondary traumatization, compassion fatigue, empathic distress. There are various ways of phrasing that. Another one I've heard from people working in directly with sort of clients in social work is when people start being aggressive and sadistic Mm. or Mm. um, short or or sort of um, bitter with their clients, with their patients, Mm. with Mm. beneficiaries of the organization. So when that, when there is a, when kindness turns into
0: um, unintended viciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So kindness turning into viciousness. And I think, I mean, I can certainly recognise. You know, when I look back, when working as a GP, you know, seeing situations that, that should have really moved me, but instead just irritated me, mm-hmm. and I think that was, you know, a variation of compassion to fatigue. I guess there's a there's a spectrum, isn't it? You can get a little bit, and then you can get serious mm. um, levels of it. And it just strikes me about how similar the symptoms of compassion fatigue they are just as symptoms of stress and symptoms of burnout so it's probably very hard to distinguish the two and my guess is that for gps and doctors with high clinical loads there's always a bit of compassion fatigue going to be built into any form of overwhelm and and stress in yeah. what, what happens to your brains under compassion fatigue what's the neuroscience so
1: the neurosciences and this is this is kind of something I also wasn't aware of during my years working directly in inside the organizations in international development was the neuroscience says compassion fatigue doesn't exist. Oh. So the thing we're actually talking about when we're talking about compassion fatigue in science lingo is called empathic distress fatigue or empathic mm-hmm. burnouts or secondary trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called compassion fatigue because the, word, the, the term compassion fatigue got coined somewhere at some point. There was an article in the, I think in the late 90s or early 90s, somebody wrote about compassion fatigue, unaware of how neuroscience was later going to look at people's brains and discover that empathy and compassion are two very different emotions or mechanisms. So that term got coined, but actually compassion fatigue is neuroscientifically speaking an imprecise term. So basically, a number of years ago, neuroscientists, Tanya Singer and some others, and also Richard Davidson's done some of this work, took some Tibetan Buddhist monks and put them in a, brain, in a brain scanner, in an fMRI scanner, and looked at their responses, their neurological responses to stimuli that suggested somebody was suffering. So they used, I think, the sounds of people crying out in agony, and they looked at what happened. And they got these monks, and one of them was Mathieu Ricard, who's very well known. He's a French molecular biologist who later on turned into a Tibetan monk and then had a really famous conversation with his dad, who was a philosopher in France, Jean-François Revelle, and then they published a Dialogue. So he's really well known for sort of his role bridging the East and the West and the contemplative world and the science world. So he was one of the people in the brain scanner, and they got these monks to meditate on compassion whilst listening to the sounds of people crying out in agony. And so then they mapped out the difference between average people hearing these sounds and what happened and what happened when a monk was hearing the sounds of somebody Mm -hmm. crying out in agony and meditating on compassion. And they could see really different areas of the brain fire up in response. And then also they could report that people were feeling quite different. So there, there was a, a greater sense of, I wouldn't call it happiness because that's not the right word, but a sort of a more, a safer containment of these emotions in the people who were meditating on compassion. And so empathy or what they call effective empathy, sort of the affect that we respond to suffering with is processed by areas of the brain that are associated with pain and compassion is a different response where we activate the areas that are affiliated with kinship and maternal love or parental love so it is essentially the contemplatives call it a love in the presence of pain okay so the thing is we do need empathy there has been a lot of you know conversation in in the media in the last couple of years in response to a book from someone called paul bloom i believe who wrote against empathy there's been a lot of backlash against empathy saying oh it's bad it makes us it makes us irrational we shouldn't use it they probably actually use things like you know medics and surgeons as examples for why empathy can be bad but actually they didn't consider that people who stop being empathic and shut down their feelings will shut down in in various ways and cannot selectively numb emotions. So they'll end up numbing it all and they'll end up being quite dysfunct in some way, socially speaking, Mm. and also health-wise, because it basically humans need connection and humans Mm. need feel. And unfelt and unprocessed emotion isn't benign. So there has been a backlash, but they didn't see that empathy actually serves a really important role and that it's kind of a gateway. It can be used as a gateway towards compassion. So people Mm. like Mathieu Ricard do not suspend empathy to feel compassion, they they use empathy as a way of tuning into what's happening and then they respond from that place of compassion.
0: Mm.
1: And that's kind of that's a process that they're trained in. And anyone can learn. And it doesn't take, you know, those marathon levels of meditation practice to learn this. That's that's some of the really encouraging research I've seen is that actually with compassion practice in particular, you build these skills incrementally from the moment you start practicing and they have a lasting impact so some forms of meditation work while you're using them like focus it takes a lot more practice to go from I'm mindful and focused while I'm meditating to I'm mindful and focused while I'm meditating and when I'm not meditating it takes a lot more practice to reach that sort of state of altered neuroplasticity basically Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. With compassion-based practice, we can experience those changes that last beyond the time that we practice a lot more quickly. So, yeah, so compassion is a mechanism that we can draw on that lives in a different part of the brain from from empathy. That's the important takeaway.
0: Right. So the, the monks when they had these dreadful crying things, they access the empathy, but they went straight to their compassion zone, their sort of mother love zone. And then other people would stay in their empathy zone where they're actually feeling it as physical pain. Yeah. And then that makes sense then that actually there's only so much physical pain you can feel and take before you you become really traumatized by it.
1: Yeah. So what happens is we become traumatized by it. And that's what's that's what we call, you know, secondary trauma or vicarious Mm. trauma, which now also the neuroscience increasingly shows is in its mechanism not very different from primary trauma and what happens is that traumatization occurs and the system the body learns very quickly to avoid that trauma happening so when it happens again and again and again and again when we work in environments where we're constantly bombarded with that level of suffering we become desensitized which is essentially physiologically speaking a healthy defense mechanism because it stops us from you know having a complete meltdown but also then has consequences, which, you know, when we become desensitized is we, we lose, we lose our ability to feel, we lose our ability to relate. We give up not just pain and suffering and agony, but also we lose joy and hope and inspiration and connection. Mm. So we pay a price for this defense mechanism.
0: Yeah. And I can see that it's going to be very hard to sort of shut off your empathy towards your patients, but keep it for your family it presumably just covers the whole of life. And so when you're compassion fatigued at work, that's going to come into your home life and affect your relationships and affect how you are with your friends and your family, your partner, your kids. So it's got to be really uh, taken very, very seriously because it affects the whole of your life.
1: Yeah, for some people, this is definitely the case from what, from what I know anecdotally and what I could observe in my environment. And I've also seen people who seem to be who seem to have more of a compartmentalizing capacity okay. with regards mm. to compassion. Mm. And this is interesting because I think this is where we're, you know, there isn't a great amount of research into this yet. And some of the some of the early indications from from some of the research, but also from my my own experience talking to people, is that there are huge variations between people mm. in terms of their coping mechanisms and their ability to to respond compassionately. So if you have a team of people, you'll probably have, you know, if there's 10 people, you may have one or two who are dealing with this exceptionally well. You may have a couple who are on the brink of, you know, leaving the job or have already left or are on extended sick leave because they can't handle it. And then you'll have a a large population in the middle who are sort of muddling through and maybe Mm -hmm. using some unhealthy coping mechanisms and experiencing some of those symptoms we talked about earlier. So there are variations between people. And what's really encouraging is that anyone can learn it. So it's, you know, it's not like it's a fixed trait because one of the really nice side benefits of this research into empathy and compassion was the discovery of neuroplasticity. Mm. You know, that we, that brains change in response to experience and experience is not just what happens to us externally, but it also includes the stimuli we give ourselves. So what we think what our mind does how how we talk to ourselves and so on so all of these practices which are quite inward facing practices that I'm working on are things that we can all learn and that can alter the structure of our response to suffering
0: mm-hmm. that is encouraging isn't it because it would be awful to think you know you're either born with this you know a, a ability to cope or, or you're not but is there an, an innate difference between people who deal with it fine and people who get really affected is it genetic or is it that the people who seem to deal with it have have already got some of these skills
1: i wouldn't be able to answer whether it's genetic or not i don't know if that research exists i would venture a guess that it doesn't yet but you know i think this isn't this is a growing field from what i can observe there are people who seem to have a natural ability to be incredibly compassionate and empathic with people without it destroying them. So mm-hmm. there are people where when you observe them at work, and you know, they may be nurses, they may be doctors, they may be community workers, social workers, who seem to be gaining strength from this work. And so there may be a genetic difference, there may be a, a life history that has encouraged that. But the really exciting thing for me is the question, what can we learn from them? You know, how, how do they do it and how can we learn to do that? And I think that's where this emerging neuroscience on compassion and empathy is really exciting.
0: Yeah. So what can we do? What can we learn to do? What small things can we learn to do that are going to make a difference for us?
1: So I think the very basic first step is to recognize that shutting down my feelings avoiding emotion is not going to have benign consequences for both myself and for the people I work with. Mm -hmm. And that's a scary, that's a scary admission because it means, okay, I'm going to have to equip myself to deal with the really difficult, painful stuff I've been trying to shut out over the last however many years. So the things we can do are basically to develop so that the way I structure this work on compassion is kind of leans on the work by Christine Neff and Chris Germer on self-compassion. But basically this idea that if you're going to have compassion for other people, sort of outward facing compassion, it needs to be inward facing first. So it's really strengthening learning self-compassion. Mm. That's, step, that's a key step. That's the foundation we need to build first. Because we need to learn to have compassion with the impact the onslaught of other people's suffering is going to have on me. So if empathy, if effective empathy means my system is going to mirror somebody else's pain, I need to have compassion with that pain.
0: So how do you develop self-compassion?
1: So there are basically a set of practices. You can call them meditation practices or mind practices. I sometimes avoid the term meditation or mindfulness because a lot of people think oh it's just about you know kind of mm. chilling out and being okay with everything and becoming quite passive and I think that's a huge misunderstanding of the contemplative tradition this comes from but basically there are practices that develop something called metacognition so the ability to observe and be present with your own experience mm. from a sort of yeah from a vantage point so to speak so instead of being my pain my agony my my fear of getting overwhelmed by other people's stuff, I can notice it. So it's that capacity to notice that we train through meditation and meditation does another thing, which is can be creative. So it's, it can develop that metacognition and it can also be creative. It can create stimuli that have, they're that going to have an impact on the way my nervous system works on the way that I respond to external stimuli. So those meditation practices are geared towards strengthening that observing capacity and the capacity to create certain states within myself. And specifically by that, I mean, self-compassion and compassion. So very simply, one of the practices that we do is called RAIN. It's an acronym that stands for R-A-I-N, recognizing, allowing, and investigating and nurturing. It comes from someone called Tara Brach. And in this practice, we basically try to break down that moment of a stimulus reaching me. Say it is that, you know, it is that recording of somebody crying out in pain. And I'm really trying to kind of take a microscope or a magnifying glass and go inside that experience of what happens inside me when I hear that cry. Notice the rising, you know, um, reaction, which could be my own pain in response to that. Than stopping and looking at that more closely, giving it permission to be there. So that's the recognizing and allowing, giving it, like recognizing that it's there, giving it permission to be there, investigating it with curiosity as as opposed to judgment. So instead of saying, "Ah, I don't want to feel this, to go, huh, what's this like? What is this experience like right now? Can I hang out with it a little bit longer? And then to nurture it in some way, which is the part that most people struggle with, but it's to basically just kind of adopt a self-compassionate, kind stance towards myself in that moment and that basically gradually builds and increases our ability to yeah to stay present with those moments and to not shut it down so basically the aim of this is to avoid the shutdown which we're also well practiced in mm-hmm. that's one of the
0: practices yeah mm. that's really interesting i was just thinking you know what can we do as, as the nurturing practice and often you know when I'm, I'm coaching doctors there's you know there's a lot of i shouldn't be like this and i shouldn't be feeling this and i you know I'm a bad doctor doing this and these sort of beliefs but just reframing it and going it's okay to feel like this and any doctor in this position would feel like this and we're only human and I've done my best for this patient I guess particularly if you've got a patient who's who's dying or maybe even if you've made a mistake or there's been clinical error or or you know even though they've had brilliant treatment things still haven't gone right because they don't do they because you know we're all just human and just yeah. going it's okay I, I did my best and my best is good enough mm-hmm. is that the sort of thing that you're meaning by by nurturing yourself
1: yes definitely so self-compassion has an element of saying it's fine you know it's okay mm-hmm. this this is allowed to be this pain this this fear this anger whatever is present in that moment has a valid reason to be here and it's okay I'm human I'm guessing that in you know in the medical profession there is that sort of projection of the saint in white, um, so the superhuman capacities, the qualities that we expect from people.
0: Mm.
1: I'm getting the impression that in environments like this, much like the humanitarian world I, um, I'm more familiar with, there is a net that people put expectations on themselves to respond superhumanly to very overwhelming situations without realizing that actually a human response also benefits the people they work for or with so it's not self indulgence it's actually a courageous act of giving to other people as well to allow oneself to be more human in those moments because we create a stronger connection with people we can give more empathy we can be more present we can we can make them feel human as well and the other thing i wanted to say to that is that a really important part of this work on compassion fatigue in my view is to recognize that self care doesn't work in isolation So in building that metacognition and that self-compassion and also the outward compassion, so those are the three kind of pillars, is really important. I don't see that working as a standalone solo, you do it at home with yourself exercise. Mm -hmm. I think that's problematic on a number of levels. I think, first of all, in all those conversations on resilience and self-care, I often observe a trend to put additional pressure on people to be fine Mm -hmm. and to get there on their own. And also, I can see that a lot of people feel very ashamed of the responses they're having to other people's suffering, and that being with other people in processing that, sharing that reality with others, has a healing effect in its own right. So that kind of sense of I'm not alone, this is a human experience. I'm human. These guys are human. We're all having these shared experiences is a really important part of dealing with compassion fatigue. And that really chimes with the research into self-compassion by Christine Neff and Chris Germer, who basically say that a sense of shared humanity and breaking through a sense of isolation is a really crucial aspect of developing self-compassion.
0: Wow. And that just rings so true, doesn't it? And, and I guess it doesn't have to be in the sort of, you don't have to join a meditation group or become a monk to do this, actually. It's just chatting to your colleagues, maybe having a bit of a debrief after something's happened bit of a reflection and a bit of admitting actually I was feeling like this what do you guys think and and sharing experiences
1: yeah we're we're social we're social animals and our nervous systems calm down and regenerate through social connection Mm. so you know kind of basically connection with other people as we know from you know from developmental research into early childhood connection with others has a really calming soothing health strengthening effect on our on our bodies so it's no surprise that sharing this challenge with other people is really important and that you know white knuckling it through on your own (laughs) is going to increase some of the the symptoms of compassion fatigue
0: yeah it's really interesting i think in general practice certainly there is no regular time built in for any sort of debriefs I know in, in hospitals, certainly in particularly emergency departments and now, you know, if there's been a very nasty trauma happened or something like that, they will make sure they have a, a debrief with the team, although not, not everyone does, but you know, I know this practice is coming in more often, but I guess it's the people that are working on their own with, with patients day in, day out. They're getting these sort of, almost these little micro traumas just that, that happening, you know, people don't often die in front of you in general yeah. practice, but you're hearing really sad stories and there's really difficult stuff going on and and this can just be all stored up and then you're so busy you don't actually get to see people Mm. at coffee time or stuff you know what would advice would you give to people in that sort of situation
1: so i think it's important to recognize the the role that sort of the drip 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 impact of small things plays in traumatizing our systems i think often When we hear the word trauma, we think of the big stuff of, you know, kind of big, massive shock events that Mm. heavily traumatize us. And we think of war with veterans and PTSD and that kind of thing. But neurobiology, in neurobiology, trauma includes sort of this idea that a steady onslaught of small things can have cumulative effects. So even if it's just small to recognize that, you know, the 50th patient saying they're depressed this week, is also going to have a really difficult impact on us and to cut ourselves slack for finding it difficult to stay caring throughout those 50 conversations I think would be really good and also to really draw on I think what nurtures us so I've been looking into something called the window of tolerance by Daniel Siegel he works on something called interpersonal neurobiology, and he looks at the, the wind of tolerance is basically something where he talks about how, you know, daily ups and downs in our nervous system, where we kind of get a little bit activated towards fight and flight, or we get a little bit pushed down into a sort of a freeze kind of response. That's pretty normal. And our, our systems are well adapted handling that sort of back and forth. But we can get stuck outside of the window of tolerance. So we can get stuck in fight and flight, or we can get stuck in freeze. And when we start looking at what kind of activities would help us unstick ourselves from those stuck places, those are basically things that will either tell our nervous system. So if it's fight, flight, uh, fight and flight we're in, so we've really activated and really tense and angry and shouty and irritable and think so fast, we can't think clear anymore. Then it's basically, that's kind of the system is goal then we need to find the things that bring the system down. So whatever is calming, and it can be it can be a, a physical activity that calms us down, such as walking around, or it can be a connection with somebody. It can be a, a quick chat with a good friend. It can be a smell that makes us feel relaxed, um, you know, a scent, something like people work with essential oils, but basically all kinds of things that basically soothe and calm our system. When we get stuck in freeze, which is where we're feeling a bit despondent and dissociated and disconnected and powerless and maybe not really there, that's where activating activities can really help. So it can be music, it can be drumming, it can be singing, it can be something that energizes us like going for a run. So it's basically to recognize, is my system stuck in go or is my system stuck in, in stop? And mm. to counteract that move a little bit with something soothing. The the space within the window of tolerance is is also called the space of social engagement. So it's where we're able to connect and empathize with other people. And so whatever connects us with other people is going to have a positive impact. So for me personally, the people that I know that really understand me, that, you know, the people who can kind of finish my sentences, the soulmates kind of friends, you know, those people where I feel really understood and heard, even a five-minute chat with one of them can really support me. And help me ground myself in a situation that's difficult.
0: Wow, that's that's so interesting, and it, it makes total sense. And I, I, I was reading a book when someone was saying that they'd advise this woman who was constantly in, in that fight um, thing to actually do some skipping every time to distract herself, and that just relaxes the muscles, calms yeah. her down. But it's interesting about the freeze thing about doing something that activates you, you know, and music or singing or something that yeah puts you to that happy place, but a good place, and gives you energy really really important so there's three things I'm picking up the first one is to do these sort of meditative practices the second one is to sort of debrief and make sure you're chatting with colleagues and and being vulnerable and open about your feelings and the third thing is sort of do some stuff that gets us unstuck from our fight flight or or freeze zones in some way is there any any other quick wins that you can think of or quick tips
1: Hmm. let me think so one thing that really helps me is to is to connect with, with the bigger picture. So mm. there was some research that was done. I'm, I don't have the study off the top of my head right now, but basically a bunch of researchers looked into the compassion fatigue present among psychotherapists, mental health professionals, and tried to work out you know, what makes the difference between somebody who's doing all right and somebody who's drowning in compassion fatigue. And what they found was that one of the key variables separating those who were doing it right and those who weren't was a sense of um, greater meaning Mm -hmm. in their lives. So for some people, that's faith and spirituality. And for some people, it's not. (laughs) There can be other ways of accessing a sense of greater meaning. But basically, those things that connect us with the sense that what we're doing and who we are is, is... is greater than the parts of of it all so for some people that's nature for some people it's music for some people it's architecture or art mu- uh, beauty accessing something that is sort of beyond the spoken word and the cognitive thought that feels deeper than that people who are really connected in to something greater than themselves in that way seem to find it easier to be in that, you know, constant onslaught and the constant ups and downs, and find ways of resourcing themselves. Mm.
0: That's really interesting. So, connecting with something sort of outside of yourself, really. Yeah. Wow. So, are there any good resources you could point people to? Say some places where they can find some of these meditations that they can do, or any further reading? What would you suggest?
1: Yeah, yeah there are a few places I could point you to. So, something I've basically been trying to do over the last couple of years is to to take some of that contemplative stuff, some of the contemplative research and contemplative neuroscience, but also the actual practices and unpack them and translate them for people not in that world because the language can be quite sciencey or it can be sort of quite alienating for people who don't like Tibetan singing bowls. And (laughs) so I try to really break those things down in a very accessible way. And I've written a few blog posts about that. So um, I've written a couple on thegoodjungle.org where I talk about the the practices I mentioned and the difference between empathy and compassion and how crucial it is Mm -hmm. in this work. Mm -hmm. Also, in the last few years, I've been constantly referring back to a book called How Can I Help?, Mm -hmm. by ram das and paul gorman yeah it's actually from the 1980s so it's
0: not really cutting
1: edge um, but i do find it really cutting edge in my own life and in my Mm -hmm. own work and i keep using it it's basically a book about the nature of the helping relationship it's called how can i help stories and reflections on service Mm -hmm. it talks a lot about the complications of you know, putting ourselves in those categories of Mm. the helper and the helpee. And it talks about the, you know, in in various forms of language, but it talks about empathic distress, empathic burnout, and things we can do to resource ourselves. So I really recommend that book. Also, more recently, someone called Joan Halifax, who is a Zen Buddhist, but also a she, I think she works on, on care of the dying and on hospice work and palliative care Palli- palliative care thank yeah, you so yeah. she's a Zen Buddhist finding mm. freedom where fear and courage meet which mm. was published I think last year or the year before and it's interesting because she's been in some ways on a similar journey from you know being a white western do-gooder who set out to uh, sub-Saharan Africa to research people in other cultures and came into contact with some quite dysfunctional ways of trying to do good in the world and then reflected on that and in this book standing at the edge she talks about a series of qualities that people who want to do good in the world need to have mm. but which need to be held in real balance because mm. if they're taken to an extreme on either side you can kind of fall off the edge so you need to kind of stand at the edge that's why the book is called standing at the edge so for example she talks about altruism which can in its highest form be a really positive force in the world but can also turn it to something she calls pathological altruism. Mm. Um, And she talks about empathy and how empathy is a really important tool and a really wonderful capacity that we have as human beings. But again, if taken to an extreme and kind of going out of balance can turn into empathic distress and burnout. Mm. So yeah, it's a really wonderful book. Thank you. Finally. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Got one more. I have been, yeah, the sort of, The meditation called Rain by Tara Brach on her website is freely accessible and in various different lengths and shapes. So you can do 10 minutes or 30 or an hour. (laughs) And it's a really good place to start exploring self-compassion. And it's something that's quite portable. So once we know how it works and we've practiced it a few times in a sort of in a more quiet, secluded setting or maybe with other people, ideally, it becomes easier to do it ourselves on the go so to speak you know
0: mm. in,
1: in the consulting room or on the bus or in the queue for a sandwich or as I walk past a homeless person in the street and so on so yeah
0: mm. brilliant thank you that's a really helpful list of resources we'll put everything there in the show notes as well as links to your website Agnes so so what's next for you what are you working on at the moment
1: I'm really excited about sort of those more recent neuroscience developments around something called Polyvagal Theory by Stephen Porges, um, which can explain, which seem to have some explanatory power for how and why certain things like yoga, meditation, contemplative practice, connection with nature and so on, have the effects that we experience them to have. So I think all of this is really relevant to the work that I'm doing and I'm really excited to find out more. And also there has been i've I've, I've sort of mentioned this backlash against this whole individualized isolating notion of self-care so there's a a an emerging conversation on collective care which Mm. i'm following and trying to be involved in right
0: wow and if people wanted to contact
1: you how could they contact you so my website is called thegoodjungle.org and if you go to the website and scroll down there is a there's a little box there where you can put your email address in my email newsletters are very very rare so for those of you wanting to hear more regularly maybe facebook is the better place so um, there's a facebook page called the good jungle and also i'm, I'm available on email on hello at thegoodjungle.org Brilliant. And so yeah but whatever social media floats your boat's
0: great thank you Agnes thank you so much for being on that has been absolutely fascinating for me there's lots to think about and I'm sure that'd be really really helpful for a lot of my colleagues as well so I'm gonna have to get you back and there's loads more we could talk about with this so thank you so much for being on great thanks Rachel I look forward to that (laughs) bye thanks for listening if you've enjoyed this episode then please do subscribe to the podcast and also please rate it on itunes so that other people can find it too do follow me on twitter at dr rachel morris and you can find out more about the face-to-face and online courses which i run on the you are not a frog.co.uk website bye for now